Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you. Dear, dear friends, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, and it is a very appropriate passage considering what we talked about all of last week and the meeting we had and the look at bringing on new, uh, bringing on Cody as an elder and senior pastor. So there's a lot here for us to apply. Some of it will be easy, some of it will be challenging. One of the most crippling ideas to pervade the church over the centuries is that there is a special class of Christians called clergy or ministers who do the ministry while the rest of the church sits back and lets them do it. One pastor states, what does the layman really want? He wants a building which looks like a church. Clergy dressed in the way he approves, services of the kind he's been used to, and to be left alone. In my first pastorate, not all the flock had that mindset, but there were some who did. And we had one dear brother, uh, I think I've mentioned him in the past, who every time he got sick, he wouldn't just go to the doctor, he would go to the emergency room of the hospital. And once getting to the emergency room, he would quickly give me a call to let me know that he was there and that he was expecting a visit. He had this mindset of lay versus clergy, where it's the clergy's job to do the work of the ministry. That's what we pay you for. And we are to show up and we are to be fed and taken care of and, and you're to do all the work of the ministry. Um, this passage we look at today in Ephesians chapter 4 gives a much different picture of what needs to go on between the pastors and the flock. The thrust of this passage is as follows. Those with leadership gifts are to equip the saints for works of service for the purpose of growing his body in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. There is a symbiotic relationship in the scripture between the pastors and the people. And each of them has a responsibility to carry out. As we look in this passage, the pastors have responsibility to equip the people for works of service. The people's responsibility is to be willing to be equipped and to exercise their gifts in works of service, both inside the church and out. And so here in this passage, we see uh, God's design for the church. Both have responsibilities. Now, in the thrust of our meeting last week, Cody was trying to share the vision he had for being senior pastor and what all that would entail. And we definitely want to evaluate, you need to evaluate Cody on whether he's qualified to be an elder and whether uh, he has a biblical view of how to grow the church. That's important. But in this passage, we see there's an equal responsibility upon the people to be willing to be equipped and to work in ministry and service to each other. That's equally true. And so while we're evaluating Cody and we're evaluating the leadership of the church and we're trying to figure out how we're going to move forward, 
we need to evaluate not only that, we need to evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves the question, am I willing to be equipped to use my spiritual gifts in ministry in this church and beyond? So first point we see here in verses 11 and 12 is God gives leadership gifts to his body to equip the saints for ministry. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So here we see four categories of people that God has given to the church. We read in Ephesians 2.20 that God is building this temple of worship. This is the body of Christ. And he tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus Christ being the what? Cornerstone. So we see here in the list, we see apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers the word apostle means sent out one as bob talked about a couple of weeks back it's used in two senses in the in the new testament one is for people who just went out to proclaim the gospel the other were those unique men who were called apostles and had a very specific role in laying the foundation for the church of jesus christ They were those 12 apostles appointed by Christ along with the apostle Paul. What were their qualifications? Their qualifications were they were men who had seen the risen Christ. Every apostle had to have seen and walked with Christ. Paul was an apostle because he saw Christ as he went on his road to Damascus. And you remember when Judas uh, committed suicide, they had to replace him with another person And that person had to be somebody who had been actively involved in the ministry of Jesus and had watched his life to be a witness to who he was. Second, they were commissioned directly by Christ. If you remember in Acts, Jesus says, wait here until the Spirit comes upon you and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were commissioned to go out and permeate the Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, the Lord gave them the ability to perform miracles as an authentication of their apostleship. How do we know these people were the apostles of Christ? Because they did the same miracles that Jesus did. And it authenticated who they were, and it authenticated that they were the people who would write the New Testament. So it was very critical. There's been no other people like these these apostles. Four, He gave them authority to found the church and to build it up. Five, their inspired and authoritative writings constitute the bulk of the New Testament epistles. Paul wrote 17 different books in the New Testament alone. They were establishing a clear word of God. And they were proclaiming the gospel of Christ and watching the kingdom go forth. And we praise God for the apostles that God raised up and used through the power of his spirit to found and launch the church. 
Because their role and qualifications were unique, when they died, there were no legitimate successors. There is no one else living since that time who has been an apostle like they have. Have there been sent out ones? Yes, people who go out to proclaim the gospel in different areas. But I believe in this passage, given what we talked about in Ephesians 2, he's talking about the apostles. God gave the church the apostles to establish the truth of the New Testament and the work of the ministry. Secondly, in much the same manner, the prophets. There's much confusion over the whole gift of prophecy and what that entails. I believe in this passage, though, we're talking about the prophets of old, even the prophets in the New Testament who helped with the canon of Scripture. So the apostles and prophets really gave us what? The Scriptures, which we absolutely have to have to be equipped for the works of ministry. Then he talks about evangelists, those who are gifted at sharing the gospel and also teaching others to share the gospel. There are gifted men like that. George Whitfield, an amazing evangelist who traveled both in England and the U.S., who could literally sit out in a field and talk to thousands and thousands of people and bellow forth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A tremendous evangelist in his time. And then lastly, he talks about the pastor-teacher. It's kind of a some people think of it as two, two ministries or two people, a pastor and a teacher, but it's really connected with a definite article. So it's really a pastor who what? Teaches. It's a shepherd who ministers the word of God to people. And that's what we're talking about when we look at Bob and we look at Cody, when we look at other and myself and others who do that. This is a ministry this is a gifting to the church for the purpose, if you'll notice, of making the church mature. That's the purpose of it. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 3, it is a noble thing. It's a good thing to desire to be an elder. It's a noble work. It's a respectable, it's an honorable work. And that's something that Cody desires is as an associate pastor to be an elder and to continue to minister the word and to share the gospel and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at this role of pastor just briefly. 1 Peter 5, 2. He says, this is Paul, or Peter, admonishing the leadership of the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What an admonition. God puts over every one of his local bodies shepherds who are to watch over and protect and give oversight to the flock. And they're not to do it because they're being coerced to do it. 
They should do it joyfully. They should do it willingly out of love for their Lord and love for his body. As God would have you, not for shameful gain. Paul was a tent maker. And Paul in several letters made the point that he didn't take anything from the flock so he could not be falsely accused of doing his ministry for what? Shameful gain. We're not, in, we're not here as ministers to do the work of the Lord for the purpose of shameful gain. There are people who do the work of ministry for the purpose of financial gain alone. Paul says, that's not, uh, Peter says, that's not what should be the case with you. How should they lead? Not domineering over those in your charge. Not heavy-handed, not controlling, not manipulating, not reigning in a, a reign of terror over the flock, but by being examples. Lead shepherds by being an example to the flock. And when the shepherd comes, he will reward you. It's a noble calling. But it's, it's not just a job that has no purpose. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul, on his way to Rome, stops by and meets with the brothers in Ephesus. And he's fellowshipping with them. And they get to the coast, and he's getting ready to board his ship. And this is the last time they're going to see him. And this is what he says to the leadership of this church. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The church... is under attack. Being a shepherd is not being a night watchman at some facility that will never be broken into. You, Bob and Cody, myself, as we look over this flock, this flock is precious to Christ because he purchased it with his own blood. Those who are here who know Christ are blood-bought by Christ, and they are precious in his sight. And he doesn't leave them unprotected. He puts shepherds over them for that purpose. And he says, you need to pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Spirit of God has made you overseers. Notice what happens next. I know that after my departure from you, fierce wolves 
will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is hazardous work. For those of us who have just been in the pew and gone to church regularly, we may have seen some of the hazards shepherds face. And Cody, as you consider this position, you need to know it's hazardous. It's a hazardous work. It's not to be taken lightly. Looking at several statistics from Barna and uh, different pastoral websites, this is the current state of the pastorate. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month. Due to spiritual burnout, contention in their churches, forced resignation, or moral failure. I know one brother, he was forced out of three churches. After he explained his doctrinal position and walked in, he was forced out. I've been in the ministry 27, 28 years. And I've had opportunity to talk to a lot of pastors in difficult situations across the country. And it is a difficult work. I have a dear friend in Fort Worth who is shepherding a flock there, and he has gone through it. in unbelievable ways. Being a pastor is not for the faint-hearted. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as pastor. 84% of pastor's wives feel the same. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter the ministry will leave within the first five years. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 70% of pastors do not have close personal friends with whom they can confide. 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they had the financial avenue to be able to do it. 60 to 80% of those who enter the ministry will not still be in it 10 years later, and only a fraction will stay to finish and retire as a pastor. 80% believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. Many pastors' children stop attending church because of what the church has done to their parents. Jonathan Edwards, the great New England theologian who is literally the person that Piper has spent his life studying, in the church he was at, they forced him out. Probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. They forced him out of the ministry. He spent his last years ministering among the Indians. And his daughter 
who was there could not go into the church to be with the people who had forced her dad out. So she would sit in the foyer and she couldn't take communion with them. And so she would travel to another town to take the Lord's table. I have a little saying, and it's true, sheep bite. So do wolves. 90% of pastors said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be like before they entered the ministry. Hey, Cody, you're going to stay? Okay, all right. And then one out of ten actually pastors actually get to the point of retiring as a pastor. Why do I say all that? Well, I think Cody needs to realize what he's walking into. Bob already knows it. Um, and I think you need to understand it as, as the, sh- the people of God. Um, because it's easy to sit back and to just kind of criticize things and just kind of be looking for what's not right. And for these men, as they carry on, they're going to need the prayer support. They're going to need the encouragement. And I'm not saying, you know, if they're, if they're in sin, they need to be confronted biblically. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And if there's things you think they could do better, you need to come to them. But the work is a noble work, but it's a hard work. And you can tell by these statistics, there's a lot of casualties. And I really don't want Cody to be a casualty. I want him, he has the... He has the potential to be a really good shepherd as he grows and matures and develops. So it's out of a heart of concern for him and out of a heart for you guys to know this needs to be a joint venture this, as we move forward in this new time. There have been threats to this church from within and from without And they will continue. You don't know about all of them, but they're there. This is true for all churches. This is true for all churches. There's threats from within the body. There's threats from outside the body. Every church has members who leave the flock for various legitimate reasons. And we have for sure had that. We've lost the tankers lease to Tennessee. We've lost the horsemen's to Atlanta. We've lost different brothers and sisters throughout the way. But as I've talked to a lot of pastors and dealt with a lot of, just from afar, just hearing their situation and what's going on, there's some things that can really hurt and destroy the church. As we look at our situation, the elders have tried to think through what all the issues are here, and I think the decline of our church is a multifaceted problem. I'm going to say that up front. It's not just, here's the problem or there's the problem. I think it's multifaceted in a lot of ways. And we're grateful for those who've come alongside us to try to help us. We've had people sit down and have meetings with us and talk through what could be done to make things better, and we really appreciate that. But the decline we have had has been very rapid. 
It's been very rapid. And I have to wonder if there are those within our midst who have soured the well toward the leadership. You know, the only credential you have to do what you do in your work is the trust of the people, correct? I look here at Michael Clark. Michael Clark runs a financial advising company. That company is built on people trusting him and trusting his sons and trusting the people there that they're going to look out for them. And once that trust is broken, that relationship ends. How many surgeons can go do surgery when people have no confidence in the surgeon? They can't. I went to a conference in Dallas one time. John MacArthur was talking just to pastors. He says, the most hurtful thing to me in my ministry, he said, there's two things. One is not watching people reach their full potential in Christ. He said, the second thing is this. Fellow pastors undercutting my integrity in the ministry. People thoughtlessly just undercutting the confidence and the trust that people have in his ministry. He said, I've spent 30 years, 40 years building a ministry of integrity and doing what I said I was going to do and faithfully shepherding the flock. And it doesn't take but one or two people who would just throw out some careless thing and undercut the very confidence that the people have in them. Once a minister has lost credibility, whether for good reason or not, they're done. It's, it's over. And if you're here in this midst and you have been part of souring the well toward the leadership of this church, I call you to repent. Is the leadership in this church perfect? No, we're not. We're sinful men walking by grace like you are. But it destroys the flock. It decimates the ranks. And it is serious, serious stuff. So, if you're here today and that is who you've been, just whispering to your friend about something you didn't like or, or something happened to you and you didn't go to the elders with it, you just came and told everybody else about it. And just slandering the leadership of the church. Little whisperings that go down. The Bible says in Proverbs, it's like a, a slander, a gossip is like somebody who just whispers little morsels and they go down into the inner part of the soul. Now, it may take months or years, but eventually that grows into something and people just walk and leave. Now, they're always going to have a legitimate reason why they need to leave. But could it be that that's part of our problem here? I beg you, if that's who you are, in Jesus' name and for the sake of this body, to repent. And while we're just talking about that, you know, if someone comes to you with a complaint about the leadership, 
I encourage you to help them practice Matthew 18. What's Matthew 18? If somebody has sinned against me or if there's a problem with somebody, who should they go to? They should, be, they should be directed to the people they have the problem with, correct? So if someone comes to you and says, I really have a problem with the message Pastor Paul preached or the message Bob preached or what Cody said in the meeting, very graciously say, I think you probably need to go talk to the person about that. And you know what will happen? They won't come to you again with that. And if you sense this person is going to be going to other people, then you probably need to say, I exhort you to go to Cody, and I will check with Cody to see if you went to him a little bit later after you've had time to pray about it and get your words straight. Because a lot of times, the, the offense is really a misunderstanding. And if they just go talk to us, they'll find out it is a misunderstanding. The leadership needs your feedback. I think Cody's clearly communicated that. We've communicated that. And in some cases, we need a rebuke. Maybe we need a rebuke. Maybe they were in sin. Come to us with that. Uh, if it is a matter, of, we have to understand, is it sin or is it you don't have my preference? If it's a matter of preference, you can for sure come and talk to us about it. But there's a difference between sin and and preference. I don't like the way you prayed that prayer. That's probably preference. Or I disagreed with you on some application of what you had to say. Then that's maybe a preference as well. Come talk to us about that. If, however, there's real sin, then you need to come to the elders and see if they'll listen. And if they won't, then the scripture tells us in First. Timothy 5, that we are to take others with us and go to the leadership to deal with that. So there's appropriate place for that, okay? We're not saying there isn't. Every pastor at FCF has preached messages that cause some in the flock to have questions about what the pastor meant. In my time here, I've had brothers approach me after the service to ask questions about the message I preached that day. And that has resulted in helpful edifying, edification and brought clarification. I just had a brother a couple of weeks back text me something about something I preached. We talked about it over text and moved on down the road. And as I've said, we've had people come to us who, who have suggestions of how we can grow. And we've appreciated that and the time they've spent caring for us in that. There are others who have had questions regarding a message, and I'm sure it's not, I'm not the only one here who has had that. I know Cody has. I know Bob has. Who didn't come to me. They went to other people to talk about it. Instead of coming to me to see if they even understood what the difference was. They shared it with others, and I only later heard about it through, through the grapevine. I would exhort you as the body of Christ moving forward. When you have a question about the teaching of Bob or Cody or whoever teaches the word, go to them first and have a meeting and talk about it and ask questions and get clarification. None of us here desire to teach heresy. We don't desire to teach heresy. 
Could we make a statement in passing that sounds like heresy? Could be. Could we make a statement that's actually heretical and didn't think about it? That's possible. So we're open to that. But come to us. Don't. I mean, that's what I want moving forward is whether it's Bob or Cody or whoever's teaching to go to them first for clarification instead of unnecessarily stirring up the body. Okay? Leadership is to be an honored and respected position. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Two admonitions there. One is to honor those who are in leadership over you. Are you saying they're perfect? No. But you can still honor them. And the second thing is be at peace with each other. Some of the people who've left here is because there was no peace between them. Okay? If you have peace with the leadership and honoring them and you have peace with each other, that's glory. That's absolute glory. And it will cause this church to thrive and grow and reach this community for Christ. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Those are sobering words. There's an accounting for those we have shepherding responsibilities over. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would not be of advantage to you. That would be of no advantage to you. The goal is to make the shepherding of this church a joy to those who shepherd it. Not to have to go, oh my goodness, here's brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so again with 95 things I did wrong last Sunday. Honor your leadership. And they are worthy of honor, 1 Timothy 5, 7. Let the elders who rule, 17, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he makes this comment, do not admit a charge or against the elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's two ways Ephesians 4 breaks down. One is the leadership lacks lacks integrity, and they're, they're, they're removed, or the, the, the body doesn't seek to be equipped and trained. Notice verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the purpose of pastor teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There has to be a willingness to work in the church. There has to be a willingness to be equipped in the church. 
I've heard a lot of good suggestions in our meeting yesterday. May I submit to you, we've asked men to be elders or at least consider going through the process. We've heard no. We've asked men to consider carrying deacon responsibilities or to consider moving toward being a deacon. We've been told no. I've asked people to consider a ministry where we get greeters at the door, help assimilate people into the body. I've been told no. For this to move forward, it's just not a matter of seeing if Cody's going to be able to lead. The question is, are the sheep going to roll up their sleeves for the work of ministry in this body? And if they're not, you know what will happen. Notice the beauty of what happens when they do. They're equipped for works of service. And then notice what happens. It builds up the body of Christ. When people are equipped for ministry, it builds up the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This equipping is going to help us have unity in faith. What that means is unity in doctrine. Now, we obviously can have differences in secondary doctrine, but primary doctrine, we need to be unified on it. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the Godhead. We need to understand Jesus' substitutionary atonement. We need to understand salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We must understand Christ will come one day physically and bodily. There are some secondary issues that we can disagree on, but we should be able to disagree and still have what? Unity. This is an area we need to work on. When people don't have our preferences, we tend to separate from them on secondary doctrine. The only people we separate from are people who disagree on primary doctrine. When the, Jeho- when the Jehovah Witnesses came to the door two weeks ago, they were not Christians. They were not going to be given the right hand of fellowship. They were exhorted to trust Jesus. We can't have unity with people who don't believe who Jesus is incorrectly. There's a place to divide. and There's a place for unity. And sometimes it's all backwards. We divide over the smallest things and we swallow huge things. Errors in primary doctrine. Oh, well, bless your heart. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. Let's just get moving on down the road together. Paul never did that. We, don't, we need to be unified on primary doctrine. Secondary doctrine and especially preferences, we need to be able to give each other freedom to have different preferences. How you live the Lord's day and a whole host of things. People need to have freedom in line with the scripture to be able to come to different convictions and that we love each other. We should be able to hold different eschatological views and still have what? Unity. Because we all believe he's doing what? Coming back, right? Are we all in agreement on that? Yes. So whether he gets here earlier or later, 
We rejoice, amen? So, looking here, we see this. Building the band up to attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of faith is doctrine. The knowledge of the Son of God is what? It is knowing Christ personally. As you and I develop our time with him and and spend time with him, it brings us together in unity. Philippians 3.10, Paul talks about all these accomplishments. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee regarding legalistic righteousness. He was perfect. And he says it's all what? Rubbish. Compared to what? Knowing Christ. He said, that I may, he said, my desire is that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, verse Philippians 3.10, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a white-hot passion to know Christ. What's going to unify us? Each of us having a white-hot passion to know Christ and to strengthen our doctrine so that we know what the truth is. Notice verse 13, we're talking maturity. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We all need to continue to grow in doctrine. If not, you are like the wave. Just sloshing around in the wind. Tossed to and fro. No anchor. The Bible and sound doctrine is an anchor, brothers and sisters, that keeps us from washing this way and that. It helps us discern who is a false teacher and who's not. And I can tell you a false teacher doesn't come up with a little tag that says, I'm a false teacher. They are very sincere. They may be very loving. They may be very passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not easy to distinguish. The way you distinguish them is in what they believe. And we need to all grow in this area so that we can discern true from false. This kind of childlike immaturity makes the body an easy target for divisive brothers who draw away people for their own purposes. If in the church today, if a false teacher is sincerely and outwardly loving, and uses the scripture, if they can quote a scripture, oh, we're, all, we're in. You quote a scripture, hey, we're brothers. Maybe not. And is outwardly loving, the immature will easily be deceived and led astray. First Peter 2, 1 through 3, we have several admonitions here for those who are childlike. And we all need to grow in maturity in this area. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may be able to grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So crave the milk of the word. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. 
And this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature For those who have their own powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It takes training in the word of God to be able to discern truth from error. And there's a lot of error in the church of Jesus Christ today. I would say that 60 to 75% of the stuff in your Christian bookstore is laced with marginal heresy to outright heresy. There's a very famous author that's always in the Christian bookstore, doesn't even believe in the Trinity. If you think the Christian bookstore is going to be a filter for you to make sure that only sound teaching is there, you are wrong. They are there for what sells. And in a culture where doctrine's not that important, Everything's up for sale. And I'm amazed that people who give me a book say, oh, this is just the most amazing book. And you start reading, you're like, wow. We're really off over here. Notice the purpose of equipping the saints. Elders are called to equip the saints for works of service. And what it does, it builds the body up until we attain maturity in faith and knowledge to a mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's God's goal for us? To become like Christ. To become like Christ. As the shepherds teach the people how to minister and as they use their spiritual God-given gifts with each other and those outside, people grow in maturity. Some people don't grow in maturity because they never use their gifts. They have to actually get out there and do it. Notice, so we talked about the immaturity in verse 14, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The purpose is that we all grow to maturity, that we all grow in our ministry toward each other. The elders are shepherding and ministering, and the people are ministering to them and to the shepherds. And the whole thing grows in maturity. Cody at one time was single. He reached a certain level of maturity. Then he got married. And that raised the maturity level some more. And then he had kids. And that raised it some more. Cody will grow in maturity walking in as to being an elder in the church. It will go to another level. Why? Because he's having to actually exercise and minister and do those things. And this is why it's so important for everybody in the body to minister. Because it's a a way that you grow in maturity. 
It's not just sitting here and listening to the sermons every Sunday and walking out and doing the same thing. It is, it is hearing the messages. And we have, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time in men's meeting getting anyone to come for men's meeting. We have a hard time getting people to come for Bible study. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be equipped, we have to take advantage of those opportunities to be equipped. And the shepherds have to bring something that's worthy to be for, for equipping. But you will not grow in maturity. I will not grow in maturity if we don't practice and use the gifts he's given us and be better equipped and continue to go out and do the work of the ministry. The whole place should rise in maturity as the shepherds equip the saints and the saints do the work of the ministry. Cody should have the problem of saying, and Bob, of saying... That's a great idea for ministry. Can you hold on a minute? Let's see if we can get some people together to pull that together and have more ideas for ministry coming our direction and having to sort through those and prioritize those. And then people who are not just saying, okay, Cody, you should do it, and Bob, you should do it. But what? I want to carry on this ministry. I want to launch this. I'll carry it out. Help me, help me figure out how to do that, and let's get people together to do that. That is when it gets exciting. And that's when it takes the burden off of the leadership. Notice here, that ministry is a combination of speaking the truth in love. Again, if we don't know the truth, it's hard to minister. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up into every man until he is, is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A healthy body grows each member, and together it grows. And it picks like a bigger picture of the kingdom of Christ. This message has application for everybody. For the leadership here, as we look at this, how do we equip the body to do the work of the ministry? Do we realize the pitfalls of being a pastor? The challenges that are there? And the people, do you see the great work the church has to do? Don't think Satan sits idly by and won't attack. He has, he does. He will. He will. And what happens when we have a problem between somebody and the leadership? Are we going to know the word well enough to know who's telling the truth and who's not? Or is this thing going to get split right down the middle? Are we as the body willing to be equipped to disciple each other counseling ministry being able to share the gospel in a concise manner are we willing to carry out our duties in our families with our children fathers with their children husbands and wives growing in their marriage reaching out into the community and building relationships with people who don't know Jesus 
Are we, continue, are we willing to be equipped? Are we willing to really minister to each other? Is this body a real priority for you? Or is this just a place you come on Sunday whenever it's comfortable? The goal of Ephesians 4 is unity in the body. Effective ministry within the body. Effective ministry spreading out to the world. It's truly an amazing thing what God can do here. God can do immeasurably more than we ever asked or imagined. What it's going to take two thrusts, right? The shepherds equipping the saints, the saints being willing to be equipped and ministering to each other. Father, we come before you. And I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters that I've worked alongside. Father, I pray that you would do Ephesians 4 in this body. That you would bring unity. That you would bring humility and kindness and gentleness and patience with each other. That you would help us to realize that we've been captured by Jesus. And he has given us gifts to use. And Father, I pray for wisdom with the leadership as they seek to equip the saints for works of ministry. And Lord, I pray for these dear sheep here that you'd help them to see their responsibility to be equipped, to deepen their understanding of your word, to walk closer to Jesus than they have before, and to make their few days here on this earth count for him. And together, Lord, that all ships would rise and all would grow more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and his honor and his praise. In Jesus' name, amen.